Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew 24, verse number 42. Jesus said, therefore keep what? Watch. Implication, you get distracted, possibly asleep. Because when you're sleeping, you don't know, you're not conscious that you are sleeping. That means we need to be awakened. Keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. Which means we're not paying attention. Father, thank you. Your word is truth. Holy Spirit, guide us. That's what you do into the truth. We pray for America today. We pray because we have watched in our world crisis after crisis in Texas, in Louisiana, in Minnesota, in Nice, where 84 have lost their lives and their families are in grief today. We pray your comfort for all of those suffering, losses in these places we've mentioned. And once again today, even before these services began, three more officers doing their duty were shot and killed in Louisiana this morning. We pray help, strength. We have to have your intervention in America. So Father, give us clarity, renew our passion, restore your church in our culture It's the only voice left of hope in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Satan, you can't have my country. And somebody better stand up and stand on that promise and commitment. And I want to talk to you about our God, our country, and what prophecies say about the future of the world that we're living in. This is part two of a short series on this issue and topic. When we speak of prophecy, it's filled with rapids like a river. Obstacles at times, eddies, undercurrents. And how do you navigate through this kind of malaise of information in Scripture called prophecy with prayer and success? It often has more to do with milestones we see along the way than in the details uh, of what thing has been foretold coming to fruition. Because events tend to swirl in the currents of prophecy all moving toward the fulfillment of what I just read to you from that passage. Sometimes it seems the prophetic is moving along rather briskly. Other times it seems like it's almost stopped and halted. It flows backwards once in a while, seemingly as its energy builds and even disappears from sight, only to reemerge again downstream somewhere. That often makes finding where we are in prophecy difficult and how we can pinpoint the time in which we live. If you're just trying to guide that by or figure that out by the currents, boy, they come up, they go up and they go down, such as, you know, all kinds of people had predictions for numerous years about when Jesus was coming back and who the Antichrist was. 88 reasons why Jesus will be back in 1988. And uh, when that didn't work, he changed it. 89 reasons why I'll be back in 89. So, obviously, there's a lot of fluctuation, a lot of trouble. I mean, who's the Antichrist? And figuring out the names and the numbers of the names, from Henry Kissinger to Mussolini, 
you name it, everybody in history has been tagged with the Antichrist label who's had any prominence whatsoever. Very difficult to pinpoint by the ebbs and tides of prophecy how these things work. It's often difficult to determine what progress has been made moving toward the culmination of history unless you gauge it in relationship to the bank of history. God gave us mile markers along the way to alert us to what's coming next. So if we look at where we've come from, it's easier to see how to handle the rapids and undertows being in the river of prophecy we're in today. By understanding the flow of the last few centuries, seeing how that has all impacted the patterns of events that occur even today, we can clearly see what the Bible prophecies say about even the United States of America. America today is regarded as a world leader, and the keys to her future are not buried in some biblical code, but in understanding the will of God as he prepares, and he is, for the final battle that will usher in the millennial reign of his son, Jesus. He will put his son on the throne of the millennial kingdom of God. He will return to Jerusalem. He will reign from the city of Jerusalem. And many look at prophecy and they think, because certain things are ordained to come to pass, that God has said they are going to happen, then it gives them reason to just sit back and wait and do very little, just waiting for God to do his thing. That's not biblical. As in the days of Noah, many continue to eat and drink, marry, and are given in marriage, and yet disaster or deliverance is at the front door. Someone said on the news yesterday, hey, the wolf is at the door. No, said the wolf is chewed through the door while we're asleep. And which door will we be allowed to enter is clearly up to you and me. How we enter into the the blessing of God of deliverance or the disaster that seems to be we're headed for. And while many think the fulfillment of biblical prophecy is simply a sovereign act of God, the scriptures indicate something might be a little different. Because when God was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he asked a rhetorical question. Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I'm doing? Genesis 18. And God decided he would take no action of judgment without granting his friend Abraham the right to intercede on behalf of those two evil cities. So God continues to work the same way. He's giving us, his church, an opportunity to get in the middle of this thing and to steer prophecy in the direction of blessing. As Daniel was reading the book of Jeremiah, he comes across a scripture. It's in Jeremiah 29. And he's reading that book, and he gets to about the 29th chapter, and it says, After 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good work toward you in causing you to return to my place. And Daniel did some quick calculations as he began to do the math, and 70 years had already passed, and Israel was still captive under the Babylonian Empire. So he begins to pray, and he begins to pray God's promise that I just read to you that they would get to return. And Daniel in chapter 9 begins to repent himself and on behalf of the nation of Israel, and, and he prays the promises of God back to him. Then the heart of the Babylonian king named Cyrus was softened, and Nehemiah is given permission to go back to Israel and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus said, you are my friends if you do what I command. I will no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I've learned from my father, I have made known to you. So as Jesus' friends, 
We should know what he's planning concerning events in these last days for our nation. We should be involved in prayer. We need to learn to individually pray and collectively pray and intercede on behalf of our culture. And as it was with Daniel, God needs someone to agree with him, pray his promises into reality, and carry out his plans on earth. And God has shown us what he's about to do. It's clear in his word. So today, as we explore God's word, open your heart to what he's saying about how our country needs to wake up, what he's saying to you about what he wants you to do to carry out his plan on earth. So America, wake up. Jesus said, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving marriage up until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. Sleep. That's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready. Say, must be ready. Because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. In the parable of the fig tree, in other words, we got lulled to sleep. In the parable of the fig tree, Jesus told his disciples that when we begin to see the events he foretold in this chapter start to come to pass, they would be indicators of the end of the age, just as new leaves on a fig tree indicate that the season of summer is about to happen, that the generation that saw these things would also see end-time prophecies fulfilled. So look at a moment and compare and contrast with me at what Jesus said would mark the final age just before he comes back. He said many apostates would come in his name, apostates, and in his name, in the name of religion, in the name of God, calling him all, by all kinds of names and, and comparing. But Jesus made it very clear. There are not many roads to heaven. Not all roads of religious experience lead to the one God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So now we've got all kinds of people claiming they've got the answers and the way, and their truth is equal truth to anyone's truth in your journey to get to God. And Jesus said, not so. That there would be wars and rumors of wars, and everywhere you're turning today, you're finding war and rumors of war and upheaval. Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So while the whole world is on fire, his people should be at peace and stable, knowing we know what this means. 
There'll be famines and epidemic diseases and earthquakes. And Jesus said, safety and salvation come from God alone. Then the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark and all your household, because I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Because you have served me, I will protect you. Then in the act of protection and redemption, God shut the door behind Noah and his family and saved him and his house. That persecution would increase, and it is all over the world, even as I speak. The church is being persecuted and troubled everywhere we turn. I was looking at this article that just came off the press this week. Russia has decided to revert back to the old Soviet ways. A new law which Vladimir Putin has signed represents almost a complete and total ban on sharing the gospel in Russia. This law begins on July 20, that's just a few days away, will prohibit evangelism anywhere outside of a church or a religious site, including private homes and online. And those in breach of it will be fined. Only named members of religious organizations will be able to share their faith and even informal witnessing between individuals will now be forbidden. In China, in one province alone, in just a few weeks, more than 2,000 crosses have been torn down. And listen, and even though the, a renewed crackdown on Christians in China has just been unleashed, the underground church, in other words, the church that continues to meet privately and secretly, continues to grow like wildfire. And the more they chase us, the greater we become. Amen? Don't you love that? Recently, a mother of seven children was hacked to death by Islamic radicals in Nigeria because she openly preached the gospel. And I could go on and on all morning telling you the stories of what's going on in our culture against people who name the name of Jesus. Because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, let's contrast even the most high your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you. No plague shall come nigh your dwelling for he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. And in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against the stone. Sin is flourishing and Christian love is growing cold. We're watching that in our culture as Satan continues to slowly supplant God with good and dilute the intensity of serving and honoring God in first place. But here's what the scripture teaches the church. But you, the remnant, the anointed, but you, dear friends, must build up your lives ever more strongly upon the foundation of our holy faith, learning to pray in the power and strength of the Holy Spirit. Stay always within the boundaries where God's love can reach and bless you. And where there are other signs of the end times found in the Bible, the ones I just gave you are more than sufficient to help us realize that the season of which Jesus spoke is upon us. We don't know the exact day or the hour, but the leaves of the fig tree for sure have sprouted and are flourishing. And it's time we better understand the significance of our now events in our history and our nation's precarious position between the two sons of Abraham so that we know what to do in the days ahead of us. And since the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem by the Romans in AD 70, the single most significant event of prophecy has been the reunification of the nation of Israel on May 14, 1948. This places us on the doorstep 
of one of, on one of the first of these three events, the rapture, the seven-year peace treaty between the Antichrist and the nation of Israel that marks the beginning of the tribulation, and third, the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, scholars somewhat at times disagree on the sequencing of all this. It's clear they're all going to occur within a relatively short period of time in a few years. And if we read these signs carefully and clearly and correctly, they're likely to happen soon, possibly and probably within our generation. And he said, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. This generation will by no means pass away until all these things come to pass. Wow. It's extremely likely that the current events that keep getting reported out of the Middle East are setting a stage for what's going to happen in the world during the Great Tribulation. If you think it's bad now, you have no clue, (laughs) unless you read the last book of the Bible, about what it's going to be like in the Great Tribulation. Wake-up call number one. The stage is set for the end times to manifest in our generation. Just look around you. The world's on fire, folks. It's on fire. The spirit of Antichrist that has become so active in the last century is rabidly anti-Semitic. While the 20th century was the most horrendous period in the history of the church for persecution, we think it only happened in the earliest part of the church in its era. No, the worst period of time has been the 20th century into the 21st century because it included the Holocaust in Eastern Europe, programs to just rid Russia and Eastern Europe of all Jews. Today, the greatest persecution of Christians occurs in fundamentalist Muslim countries under Sharia law. It's their religious criminal code. It's out of their Koran. I wish I had time to get into that. I don't this morning. But I can tell you this. That Sharia law does not in any way, shape, or form is it compatible with the Constitution and principles of the United States of America. Their news media in that part of the world is filled with disdain for the Jews. There's white-hot embers that keep the fires of anti-Semitism and terrorism against Christians red-hot and blazing. And the spirit of Antichrist has been behind the greatest threats to freedom that we've seen in the last century. That's Antichrist spirit. A religion that tells you Christ was a great prophet, but he is not the son of God. That's an Antichrist spirit. That's how you define an Antichrist spirit. When they will not declare to you that Jesus, in fact, shed his blood, he is God's son, died and rose again, that's an Antichrist spirit. Fascism, Nazism, communism, Wahhabism, the form of fundamentalist Islam, fueling terrorist rage. If we read trends correctly, it's also the spirit behind much of liberalism's secular relativism that's trying to silence the voice of God in American culture. And though this spirit has also infected blocks of the church today, because just last night the report came out that the Methodist church in its western region has just agreed in opposite opposition to the principles under which the Methodist church stands. Biblically, they have just gone ahead and appointed a gay bishop in the western region of the Methodist church because that spirit has infiltrated even the church in America. 
It's called apostasy. What does apostasy mean? You are deviating away from the principles of God's word. Anti-Semitism. So don't be confused or surprised by this. It's all predicted. 1 Thessalonians says, only he who now restrains it, that's total lawlessness, will do so until he is out of the way. And that one mentioned in this passage is the infused, remnant, Holy Spirit-filled, anointed body of Christ on earth, the church that has the message of Jesus right out of the pages of God's word. And the moment Christ comes back and removes his church, this whole world is in for a hell on earth. So what should our response be in light of the first wake-up call? Follow Christ rather than today's cultural, moral relativism. We do not change this, these principles because the culture says they're now acceptable. The remnant church will always follow the spirit of Jesus, exhibiting his fruit and his gifts, not those who have turned toward political correctness rather than allowing the love of God and the word of God to rule our hearts and lives. That's what rules us, God's word and God's love. If the United States cuts her ties with Jerusalem and continues down this road of moral relativism, it's dragged our State Department into it, liberals into it. It's easy to foresee how this nation stands on the cusp of destruction because that's exactly where we're going if we stay this course. Number two, God will bless those who bless his people and who bless those who are righteous. Now watch. God made this promise to Abraham and all his descendants. In Genesis 12, we read these sobering words. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. Well, we, the people of God, should be vigilant to maintain our commitment to Israel. Did you hear what I just said? We need to maintain our commitment and retain it to Israel. Because God blesses every nation that blesses the descendants of Abraham. And America should choose righteousness, putting God on his rightful throne as the leader of our hearts and the leader of our country. God should always be first. Always. The Bible says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Very distinguished among all the other gods that are worshipped. The Lord God, Jehovah. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace. And now we're calling what God calls evil good in America. If America is to maintain or retain the world power that it has today, God must be our leader and righteousness must be our crown. Politics and the course of our nation do not determine what is in our hearts. It's not political correctness that determines this, the direction and the compass and the posture of my heart. It's the result of what is there, right? It's what's in here, God's truth. If God is to truly heal our land, it's not just a question of correct foreign and domestic policy, but an issue of the church of the United States rejecting cultural relativism earnestly seeking the God of the Bible and his ways above all other ways. Our battle is not a conflict between Christians and our culture, but between good and evil, between the spirit of Christ and the spirit of antichrist. And that's where the battle lies. 
between revealing Jesus to our world and being satisfied with complacency and lukewarm Christianity, which is everywhere widespread now in America. So what should our response be in light of this second wake-up call? Pray like you have never prayed before. And if we call on God to heal our land, America will avoid being swallowed up in the spirit of this world and the culture of this world that, that will end up putting us on the wrong side of the battle of Armageddon. We want to be on Jesus' side when that battle breaks out, not on the wrong side of that battlefield. And as we pray, we better start lifting up the pastors and leaders, spiritual leaders of the churches of America, that they would have boldness to declare truth and that our churches will then lead our country toward obedience to the things of God. And listen, whether or not the rapture takes place tonight or a year from now or 10 years from now, there are things we can do right now to assure peace in our time. With the help of God, we can accomplish what no other nation on earth could have ever hoped to do, but we can't do it without a major course correction. It's time to realign our moral compass. The church needs to be a purpose-driven body of believers, determined to preach the truth from the pulpits of America, determined to be salt and light in a very dark and hopeless world. But sadly, too many pastors today have bought into the worldview that the church is just another social venue. And according to the author and researcher Barna, he says, quote, the research shows that when pastors evaluate the success of their church, they measure attendance, dollars raised, number of staff, number of programs, and square footage. Now, while all of those have some logic to them and are interesting to look at, the only problem is that Jesus did not die a horrible and undust death on a cross to just fill sanctuaries and generate cash and populate programs and hire religious professionals and build up campuses. That's not why Jesus died the ugly death. He died and rose again. Not for a feel-good message, but for a message that says, pick up your cross every day, deny yourself, and follow me. We stand as Nineveh did when receiving the message of Jonah. We have the choice of either continuing as we have, leaving God behind, or repenting and experiencing divine revival. We're at a crossroads, but more significantly, we're in the crosshairs of those who hate Christians and hate all that we stand for as citizens of the United States. And to these, we must respond both spiritually and naturally with Christian love and compassion, also with political wisdom and strength based on clarity of vision Moral integrity. It's a worthy calling far more powerful than the call to martyrdom of a jihadist suicide bomber. Yet until we live with greater conviction than they die with, our generation will experience nothing of what God wishes for us. If we could just be that committed, God would do something beyond your imagination. Had the church obeyed the great commission to be a witness to him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Islamic fundamentalists such as Hamas would not be able to corrupt the minds of their children with hatred for Jews and Christians. Instead, those children would have been exposed to Christianity, 
filled with the mercy and the grace and the love of a God that they have no knowledge of. And the truth is, Palestinian Christians do not blow up Jews. And Palestinian Christians do not, do not behead other Christians. Revival would be spreading all over the Middle East. And the tragic events of 9-11 might have never happened. So now, in September, we've got to commemorate on that Sunday, September 11, 15 years since the horrific attacks on our shores. With a guest who was a survivor of above the point of impact in one of the towers. Did the church fail this nation? Has the church failed the Lord Jesus Christ in doing what he asked us to do? Is the church guilty in the eyes of God of failure in our day? Is it too late? No, it's not. But if ever the church of Jesus Christ plans to repent and follow the great commission, rather than continue to pursue the great omission, it's today. Right now. Not a year from now. Today. Listen to a pastor share in conference a little bit about some of the things that have created great growth in, in, in the ministry he has. And, and some were, you know, even the news media, local news media was there, and they were trying to interview him and ask him, well, what do you attribute these numbers of people that you have coming to church every week? And why have you grown when others don't seem to have? He said, simple, I don't have any magic formula. He said, we don't do anything spectacularly different than a lot of other churches do. He said, even though the preaching is good, it's not, that's not why we have great Here's why we have great growth. Because every week, my people go into their culture and invite other people to come to church every single Sunday. And because of that, we have scads of people, new people coming every single service because they've been invited. They've been invited because they're busy about the Great Commission. And once they get up off of it and start doing that, every church in America begins to see growth. I pray that pastors will again preach on the second coming of the Lord. And preach about the fires of hell because they're real. They're not imagined. That the, the, the fiery Protestant peach, preacher Jonathan Edwards acknowledged as the, as the progenitor, as the driving force behind the first great awakening, he emerged from Puritan and Calvinistic origins. Yet he stressed the spiritual necessity of a personal choice relationship with Jesus. And he was described as solemn, a very distinct and careful enunciation when he preached, and a very slow cadence when he preached. Services were three to four hours with Edwards as their pastor. Even so, he was known for his anointed, authoritative sermons, one of which is well known as the classic Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which we had to read, by the way, in high school. Can you imagine that? They wouldn't let you read that now, but we had to read that in high school. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. So powerful were the word images that he created when he preached this, and he had a problem with his eyesight, so he preached with his notes like this. So you could hardly see the expressions on his face, but because he painted such graphic word images in the messages he preached, people would grab hold of the posts inside the church and and hang on and holler, God save me, God forgive me, God I repent, what shall I do to be saved? In fear the ground was going to open and swallow them on the spot. There never was a time in history when God ever dwelt in a church that held an earthly perspective. God does not inhabit that environment. 
So it's time for us to proclaim the message. And why? Because this world has taken over the church. The culture has compressed us into its image. Abortion, divorce, pornography, drugs, alcohol, sexual immorality, alive and well in America's church. You live one day in my shoes and I'll show you what I'm talking about. Many pastors fear retaliation so they don't preach on these topics. And listen to this. Just got this in the mail two days ago. The American people are frustrated by numerous aspects of the coming election because of biased media and inept political parties. And the complaints from the Christian conservatives during the 2014 midterm election cycle was that their church was providing little guidance for their thinking about the issues. Surveys have borne out their disenchantment. Relatively few pastors preached about the issues of the day during that election cycle. The 2016, the one we're in now, presidential election cycle promises to be worse. There is no issue that even four out of ten theologically conservative pastors have preached about or plan to preach about before the November 8th election. That's amazing to me. Okay? The newest survey raises questions about the reasons for conservative pastors withholding biblical wisdom from their congregants. Theologically conservative pastors are refusing to teach biblical principles related to current issues because they are concerned about being seen as political. Listen to me. The issues that we need to preach about are biblical, not political. They're biblical. This book owns them. The world and culture has stolen them from us, and now pastors live in fear talking about them. The Bible speaks clearly to these issues. Not wanting to risk the loss of numbers of people or donations. And concern about the status of the church's nonprofit designations. And we're not seeing any growth in the determination or, or practice of pastors helping their congregants discover or apply biblical truth in relation to today's social economic issues. One out of ten born-again Christians has a biblical worldview. That means nine out of ten who sit in our pews every Sunday, do not have a biblical worldview. You have a cultural worldview, been shaped by the culture. Paul said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. When millennials and other Describe Christian churches as irrelevant, Barnard continued. They're not talking about styles of music and dress codes as much as they are attacking the focal point of church services, the lack of teaching. That's sad commentary on us, that this is what the culture says about us because we will not stand up and tell the truth. Wake, wake up call number three, and i got to close. Ready or not, Jesus is coming back. You can do whatever you want to do because you're free to choose. God gave you that option, but whether or not you're ready, irrelevant, he's coming back. As a minister of the gospel, God's placed one message I need to preach. Jesus is coming back. The Bible says, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. 
I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Who said that? Jesus said that. But I thought he was the kind, lowly Savior. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. The end of the war is already written. Check out the end of the Bible. In Revelation 20 and 10, it says, And the devil who deceived them, that's the culture. He deceived the whole culture, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. There's no end. There's no reprieve. There's no time off for good behavior. There's no U-turn. There is, there's no com- ending of their sentence and communing of their sentence, and, and, and there's no place they're going to go for reprieve. That's it. They're there. They will stay there, and they're never coming out. Not only will be Satan locked up forever and ever, but, and those who follow him, but Jesus will reign forever and ever, and his followers will be with him. Revelation 21, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He's coming back to dwell with us. And he will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. I'm glad the old order is about to die. And what should be our response to wake up call number three? We better learn to worship and we better learn to declare God's word. These are no longer times we can sit back and passively be too busy to think about how tragically lost our world and culture is. The days are evil. We are to be actively combating the evil Satan's trying to bring about in our country by forsaking sin ourselves, cleaning up our own act, worshiping God, being faithful to God, and honoring God in all our ways. And declaring no one other that Je- declaring to one another, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is returning, telling our culture the message of the love of God in Christ Jesus. And we call our country to wake up. Remember three things. The stage is set for the end times to come in our generation. God will bless those who bless his people, and he will bless those who are righteous. And ready or not, Jesus is coming back. I want to declare to you today, Jesus reigns. He always has and always will reign. And he shall reign forever and ever. At the end of time, he will reign from his throne in Jerusalem. I want to declare to you today that though America has been lost and wandering in darkness, that a new light is about to dawn in America. I want to declare to you that a third great awakening is about to break and that God is going to bring repentance and hear our prayers as we pray for our great nation. And I want to thank him and worship him with more intensity and passion than I ever have in my life. And I want to invite those of you who have not yet placed your faith in Jesus to do the very same thing. Jesus lived the perfect, sinless life He came out of heaven, took on human form, and paid my sin debt and your sin debt on a cross. On the third day, he rose from the dead. He is now in heaven praying for us and preparing a place for us. And we're going to get to be with him forever. And he says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
So when we ask him to save us, we receive forgiveness of our sins, freedom from his wrath. We receive a personal relationship with God, our Father and Savior. Our names get written in the Lamb's book of life, and we receive an unshakable hope. One day, we will forever be with the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. What a great message of hope in a world that's nosediving into hell itself. We've got the only answer that takes us out of the dive. Amen? Stand together with me and say, thank God. Thank God for hope. Thank God for the third great awakening in America.